Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. This topic is going to be very sensitive for a lot of people, especially if you lost a loved one to suicide. How do you cope with a loss so big? Well, I bring in leadership life coach Michelle Lazar Eng Hang. She knows firsthand she lost her husband to suicide. Michelle's going to also talk about how she navigated her way through the stigma, the shame, and the mental challenges. She goes into more detail on how she rebuilt her life and now dedicates it to help others. She'll also talk about her pain to purpose. If you've lost a loved one, definitely tune into this episode. Let's get started. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. You're listening to the On Call Empath Show. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Welcome to another edition of the On Call Empath. I'm your host, Raj Montaj. I'm very excited today. I have a very special guest that I've been trying to get on my show, um, Michelle Ang Hang. Well, thanks for joining me today. Uh, Michelle's a certified leadership life coach, and she specializes in supporting individual families with mental health challenges and moving on after a loss. She's also a a motivational speaker. She's going to share her story today, and I'm going to let her explain it. So, Michelle, thanks for being here. How are you doing today? (laughs) I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So I'll just start by asking you, you know, just if you can share your, your story with us, that'd be great. Sure. So, um, my story, <laughs> my big story yes. got me to where I am today. Your big story. Yeah. So, um, 14 years ago, I lost my husband. Uh, he died by suicide after suffering from mental illness. Um, he had, um, bipolar disorder and a form of schizophrenia. Uh, he was, had just turned 35. I was 34. We had, um, our, well, we, our boys uh, at the time were seven and four when he passed away. And um, as if that wasn't hard enough, um, the family coming from a place where mental illness and suicide were not discussed decided that we were going to tell everybody that my husband died in an accident. And so I kept that secret of of the suicide for over 10 years. Um, And as as everybody can probably imagine, it had um, a huge impact on on my life, keeping that secret. Um, And um, yeah, you know, just a, a very difficult journey. It impacted my mental health. I went through depression. Um, because, you know, not being able to grieve the way that I needed to and grie- grieving a suicide and grieving, uh, an accident are very different. And, um, 
and having, and I had anxiety because I spent all those years worrying. What if somebody finds out? What if we're called out on it? What if somebody tells my kids? Cause my kids didn't know the truth either. Um, and so, you know, and then a lot of times when we've got, um, psychological stuff going on it manifests itself physically so started developing chronic pain and things like that and eventually reached a point in my life where I said I can't do this anymore and um, told my kids the truth and shared it publicly and realized this is the work that I want to be doing in the world is, is helping people um you know, that, that are dealing with mental health challenges, um, you know, support them in the way that I know I needed support, uh, both as the caregiver and as somebody who was living with mental health challenges. Um, and, and, you know, being an, an advocate and speaking up against ending the stigma around mental illness and suicide. Right. I mean, you're, you're very brave to come forward and and uh, especially after everything you've been through and and turning it around and, and being a advocate for suicide. And I know that you have a lot of things going on and you tr- you're trying to help people and make a positive light out of this. And uh, I commend you for that. So what would be the first stages um, that you would say to begin to even grasp uh, what you went through and start healing, like the beginning process? What does that look like? Yeah. So, so don't do anything that I did. That's the first thing I say. Is I, I wrote the guidebook of how not to do it. Right. <laughs> um, you know, first thing what I, I say to everybody that I work with is get support. This is not something that we can or should be doing alone. Um, you know, whether, whether we are living with um, you know, family member who has a severe mental illness. Uh, th- it's so hard. It's, you know, there, there's, you know, so much going on with, with the family member and we often get on that roller coaster with them. And, you know, until there's somebody else out there that's able to say, you know, you got to take care of you. Um, you know, we, we don't realize it. Like we, you know, just kind of get, get drawn in and this is just how life looks. So, you know, get support, um, you know, whether it is talking to a trusted friend about what you're going through um, or getting professional uh, support, whatever that looks like, don't, don't keep that inside. And that was something that, you know, we didn't do when my husband was alive. He, he felt a lot of shame around his, his mental illness. He, you know, had a lot of, of, I mean, he was a very humble man, but he was also, he had pride in, you know, being the man of the house and the provider for the family. And so for him not being able to work, which he had to stop working a couple of years before he passed, um, because the illness was just so, so difficult for him. Um, he felt, you know, he felt shame that like he couldn't take care of the family. And I ended up having to work two jobs and, and, you know, take care of our kids who were really very little when, you know, when the illness took hold. And um, so, yeah, I just kind of kicked into autopilot and just, you know, one foot in front of the other. But um, yeah, I think that's the first step is just, just starting to talk about it and just sharing with somebody what you are going through. Yeah. And, and I think that's very important. Um, you know, we do need support. I mean, a lot of people cannot do this on their own and it gets to a point where it gets overwhelming. And, um, I know there's a lot of listeners out there that are 
that have probably gone through something similar. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you is you mentioned something about pain to purpose. Can you, can you explain that to the listeners a little bit? Sure. Um, so turning my pain into purpose meant finding meaning in everything that happened. Um, you know, I think as humans, we're, we're always searching for meaning, like, what did this mean? What did that mean? And, you know, it, it took me a long time to get to that place too of, you know, cause I, I, I took a, a lot of it on myself and I was blaming myself as well. And just like, you know, and then, and blaming God and blaming you know, just the, the system and all of that of just like, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my kids? And, and obviously that doesn't take us into a good place. Um, and really what, what, what I needed to do was, you know, I mean, there, there was a lot of healing and a lot of work that went into me shifting out of the space that I was in of keeping the secret and, and, you know, all of that, but realizing that, you know, it, it's, you know, that there's something that, that I learned a phrase, it's just um, a phrase of things don't happen to us, they happen for us. And I know that that um, belief can challenge a lot of people because they're like, well, I didn't ask for this and how is this helping me? But I just, I found for myself that when I can turn it into something that yes, this happened to me and, and don't get me wrong, it sucked, it sucked big time. Um, and at the same time, this happened to me and I have inside knowledge of what this is like. And so I can help people who are going through it because I understand what it's like. Like I've healed, I've done my work. Um, and you know, people that come to me, um, to be coached know that I get it from, you know, from a personal, you know, and, and they'll say things like, you know, you know, whatever their, their feelings are. Cause you know, often with, um, you know, when we have somebody in our life with a, a real mental health challenge, you know, there's sometimes frustration or anger or grief, and we can't talk to the family member about it. Cause we don't want to make them feel worse. So, you know, they come to me and they're like, you get that. And I'm like, Oh, I do, you know, been there, done that felt all, all the very unpleasant emotions mm -hmm. that went with it. Yeah. And I can relate to that. And and that's one thing I want to point out uh, what you just said to my listeners. I know that a lot of people we find trust and family friends and, but I mean, in my, my situation, like I have to go to somebody that's been through the hell that I've been through and, you being a life coach and going through what you've been through, I think there's something to be said about that. And, uh, you know, the way that you connect with your clients or, your, you know, the way you, you talk to people, you're, you're basically doing it from a place where you've been there, you've done that. So that's one of the things that I've noticed uh, reading your story. Um, now, just kind of talking, uh, switching gears, um, you had, you had mentioned you had a narcissist mother, um, and you have some experience with, uh, narcissism, gaslighting, manipulation. What can you kind of give us some information more about that? Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I I already grew up in a very, I had grown up in a very shame-driven home. I mean, anybody with experience with a narcissist knows what that's like. And, you know, when it's, when it's a parent, um, you know, our whole identity is, is created around them. <laughs> and, you know, our, our whole reflection of ourselves is how it impacts our family. So, um, so I already felt a lot of shame that, you know, I had a lot of, um, I experienced a lot of emotional abuse and, you know, putting me down. And so I, I already had a very little, if any self-worth at the time. Um, so for me, you know, go then, you know, dealing with the suicide and the shame around the mental illness and the suicide just seemed like, okay, well, it's one more thing that, you know, to feel shame around. And it's one more thing that maybe somehow was my fault because it seemed, you know, I grew up always with, you know, everything was my fault. You know, my mother's, you know, what I heard so many times over was I wanted to go to law school, but I had you. Yeah, you know, it's like, hey, I didn't ask to be born because <laughs> you know, she had me at 21 and um, it was like, thanks. And um, so, yeah, so so that was, played a huge part in it because I just assumed somehow maybe, you know, I hadn't figured out how this somehow might be my fault, but I was convinced that if I just waited long enough and explored long enough, I could figure that out because that was kind of how my my life was. And I you know, I didn't have my family support through any of this either. So that, um, you know, that was really impacting me. I mean, I've been estranged from my family um, for, oh, I'd say probably about 25 years now. And that was really uh, a matter of survival for me. So, you know, going going through this experience and not having my immediate family, you know, definitely compounded um, what I was going through. I mean, I remember one of the days, like in the few, first few days after he passed away and like sitting, sitting on the stairs in my house uh, next to a friend of mine. And I just had my head in her lap and I'm sobbing. And I looked at her, I'm like, this is supposed to be what I'm doing with my mom, you know, and, and I wasn't. And it was just like, you know, grieving that at the same time as grieving the loss of my husband, of just recognizing what I don't have. Not that my mother ever could have given that to me. Like she, she sent like a fruit basket to the house and was like, yeah, thanks. That that's what I need. (laughs) So yeah, it. um, but yeah, growing up in that home was very, really challenging. Like it just, you know, I learned, I learned to hide, um, that was the safest way for, for me to exist mm-hmm. and stay out of trouble because it just seemed like, you know, there, there were times where it's just, you know, my breathing would bother her. Like wow. literally she'd just be like, do you have to breathe that loudly? It's like, wow, I can just <laughs> stop. Like, wow. you know, like, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Had to do a lot of, a lot of work around that yeah. too. And, you know, I, I had done, tons tons of therapy like since my early 20s but um yeah having these huge things happen to me in my life really were were wake-up calls too of just like okay how how much of my past am I living in and how many of those stories of like who I think I am are are even not like true or not true and and I'm glad uh, you mentioned that I mean there's a lot of listeners out there who are dealing with narcissists 
whether it's a family member, a boss, a husband, a wife, um, it, it, you do feel lonely. And even if you have a family or you're with a loved one, you could still feel lonely no matter, uh, you know, who you're with, if they're a narcissist, um, as empaths and highly sensitive people, we tend to, uh, gravitate and they come to us. And so I wanted to ask you, Michelle, um, now knowing what you know, (laughs) um, I, I mean, you seem more of a highly sensitive, like an empath. Like, can you sense like a narcissist? Um, yeah, I, I can honestly say I can smell them from a mile away. <laughs> I can tell even just from like their facial expressions very often. Um, and it, and it's interesting because one of the things that, and I'm sure many of your listeners who are empaths and, and you know, involved with narcissists, one of the things that we're taught is like your intuition is wrong. You know, whatever you're thinking is wrong because it might not serve their story. And so, you know, being raised by one, I was always taught that like, no, no, that's wrong. And so I never trusted myself. And that I think was the biggest key to my healing was trusting my intuition and saying like, okay, I know, I know this person's a narcissist. I don't need the list of like the reasons why. I just know. And then, of course, eventually, because they can't, you know, keep it to themselves for a long time, it usually reveals itself. But that was the thing that the more I proved it to myself, it was like, oh, your intuition is actually better than most people's. Because also, don't forget, like, for, you know, those of us who who are raised by narcissists or grew up in homes with narcissists, like, we were walking on eggshells. Like, we had to have this heightened sense of of awareness of like what we're walking into every time you walk in the house, like what kind of mood are they in? Like we, we have such a fine tuned sense of that. And, and yet we are told by them to ignore it. And it was only after getting away from it and then actually saying, you know, I, I happen to write like 99% of the times. And I finally was able to acknowledge like, you know what, of course I, my intuition can be trusted. Like I had to learn how to manage, like, okay, is this one of those times where I talk to her or do I just go straight to my room and say I've got homework to do and hide? You know, and, that, and that was really it. I know you've, uh, I've heard you say rules of engagement and kind of just kind of protecting yourself. Can you explain to the listeners um, what that stands for and what, what it means to you? Yeah, so I mean, I, I find like protecting myself from that. So, I mean, I, and I'm, I'm going to be totally transparent too. Like once I, I disconnected from my mother, that was not the end of the narcissist for me. Like that's, you know, when, when you, all you know is narcissistic love, that's what you're attracted to. And so it took me a couple of relationships with other narcissists, um, to do, to, you know, finally reach the point where it was just like, I'm just, I'm done with this. Like I can't take any more pain. Um, so really it, you know, for me, it's about, you know, setting those boundaries, um, recognizing, you know, we, we have this need to be loved. And like, I know I can tell you, like with the first narcissist I was involved with, you know, my husband was not a narcissist. He was a beautiful, loving human being. Um, and at the same time, I recognize now that his mental illness prevented me from getting 
like from real intimacy because he could only get so close because he was dealing with his own stuff. So in a different way, I mean, you know, we, we create those, these patterns of codependency. And um, so I, I could see how I was attracted to him, but after he passed and I started dating again, um, I got involved with a narcissist and um, you know, I just, I wanted to be loved. And even though I knew he was a narcissist my desire to be loved was so much greater than the desire to get out of it. And, and I found that was a theme for me. And so really, I, I think, you know, what I know now is when I recognize it, don't get close, don't give them a chance, you know, and then, and what you were saying about the boundaries, like I, I know for me, you know, it was so hard. Like I didn't feel like I was entitled to say no. That was that was one thing. And I, I had been told for many years I wasn't entitled to say no. And then I would give excuses and reasons why I said no. And I would, you know, almost like like I needed to convince people. And then I heard somebody saying what boundaries are. And it's like, you know, yes, I can do this or no, I can't, period. You don't owe anybody an excuse. And it was like, oh, oh, I don't need to give the list of like, because I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm tired and I'm this because you know, I would have my my running tally of all the reasons. And it was just like, you know what? End of sentence. And and I tested it out and it started working. And, you know, with people who are not narcissists, they can accept that. And it's really the people that have trouble accepting your boundaries that really need the boundaries the most. And so that's where I realized that like, okay, you know, I need to take care of me. I need to, you know, love myself. I need to take care of myself. I can't come from this depleted place, which I was in all the time, you know, between like you were saying that, you know, being in this hypervigilant place where our nervous system is just like constantly like worrying that the war is going to break out in any minute because, well, it might, you know, <laughs> but um you know, really just slowing myself down and just saying like, it's okay, I will be fine. And and the truth too, about those of us who are with narcissists, like we don't give ourselves even a third of the credit that we deserve for our survival skills. <laughs> like we've got a really high threshold for pain and we are pretty resilient. We just often don't know it yet. Right. So it is kind of like a practice makes perfect. And that's what I kind of talk about in all my episodes is you might have a problem saying no or, you know, because you're, you're so conditioned for years of abuse and hiding in your room and, and uh, getting abused. But once you start doing it after a few times, it does get easier. And just like Michelle's saying, you know, you have to put yourself first. Now, um, Michelle, I just wanted to ask you, um, knowing what you know now, if you can like go back to your, I guess, <laughs> your younger self, what would you tell that person? Whether it's somebody like your own daughter type thing, like what would you kind of convey just to kind of get her through what you went through? Mm -hmm. Trust what you know to be true. That's, I think, the number one thing because. I know, um, I know with my mother and I know with the other narcissists I was involved with, um, they would challenge my truth and then it would confuse me. I mean, you know, the gaslighting and all of that and, and it would mess me up because I would believe them over what I knew to be true. 
And, and that's where I would, you know, start misstepping because then I'd start trying to formulate the story that worked around what they said. And, and the reality is like, my truth is my truth, period. And, and that's a non-negotiable. And so I think that's, you know, and, and it's, it's easy to say now, like, oh yeah, trust your truth. But you know, when, when somebody is messing with your mind that much, it is hard, but just keep coming back to what you know. I know for me, a huge part of, of my healing um, was journaling. I would write out, you know, like even though in, you know, those relationships, you know, they, they would challenge my truth. I would still write it out. I know this is true. And and I would look back on it and remind myself and, and it was, you know, it was get, it does get easier over time. Like it's, it's not an overnight thing as I'm sure everybody knows. These are one of, you know, the hardest types of relationships to, to get away from. That is amazing. Um, <laughs> anyone that's listening out there, you know, journaling saved my life. I know that I started uh, journaling after I think read a book by Nicole Sachs, called the truth. Um, she called something called journal speak. I would actually write in there as I was like kind of helping myself. And then I would go back and I would reread it and then try to analyze it. And that I would say helped me a lot for many people. It could be different. I mean, you might need to ground breathing, going to a life coach, but for me, it was journaling 100%. So I, I definitely can agree with you on that. Mm. And I did, I mean, I did many different types of therapy as well. Like it wasn't just like the journaling came along with all the other work that I did. I mean, I, you know, did different forms of therapy. I did, um, I did trauma work. Um, so there's EMDR, which is amazing for trauma. Um, I did something called Rolfing, which is, um, somatic healing for trauma where, you know, they stretch out your fascia because that's where trauma is stored. So it was a lot of different things. And I also did mindfulness and meditation training. Um, and that I, I think like, you know, you, you spoke to that just now. Um, I find that that piece too helped me so much from getting out of that hypervigilant state. And, you know, and, and it's funny because I didn't even realize I was in it until just even a, a few years ago, one of my kids said to me, like, she was like, you know, it's really weird, mom, but every once in a while, you just kind of like freeze and start looking around as though like, you just heard something or like, you're afraid somebody's going to attack. And I was like, I do that. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. But I was like, I said, you know, that makes sense. Cause that's the hypervigilant me. I must've sent something. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, he hasn't told me that in a long time that I've done it, but I know that for me, the grounding and the centering and, and all the mindfulness of just slowing my nervous system down. You're very fascinating. I really enjoyed speaking to you. If you can just give us, um, uh, a little bit, uh, where we can find you and the mindset work that you do. Uh, if you can let us know and my listeners, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, sure. So um, you can find me um, through my website, which is michelleanhangcoaching.com. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram as Michelle Anhang Coaching. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, where else am I? I, You're all <laughs> I over think the that's place. enough places. If, I'm all over the place. If, if you search me up, you can find me. Um, and, you know, the work that I'm doing with, with um, 
with people is, is you know, there, there's definitely the mindfulness component. There's the mindset, um, the self-love piece, which is so huge. Um, you know, and it's, it's can be, uh, you know, it depends where people are at, you know, but it's, it's not an overnight change. Like it's taken us however many years to develop these patterns. It does take time to, to heal from them. But, um, you know, so there is patience, but it also is possible. Like I, I can say now, like I am not the person I was, you know, 14 years ago, even even five years ago, like the more I speak up and the more I practice, the more confident I get in in who I am. And sometimes like, you know, depending on on, you know, who the narcissist is in our lives, like, you know, for me as the child of a narcissist, I had to start from scratch of like, who am I? What do I like to do? Because I didn't know, like she was always telling me. (laughs) And so I didn't actually know what I liked. I truly commend you, especially for everything that you've been through and now you're giving it back. Um, that's, I mean, that's to me, there's, that's passion and you, you definitely know what you're talking about. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to be on this uh, podcast. I definitely appreciate it. Hopefully we can have you back in the future and you can give us some more, uh, wisdom. (laughs) Thank you. I'd love that. Excellent. All right. So that does it for this episode of the On Call Empath. If you can uh, please review us on iTunes, that helps me out a lot. And stay tuned for the next episode. And we are out. You're listening to the On Call Empath.